Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, today for our hot question of the day, I want you to pretend that you are someone else. Okay, that's the basis of our hot question today. So this comes a day before there's going to be this crucial caucus meeting of the federal liberal MPs. And there will likely be a discussion on whether or not they want Jody Wilson-Raybould to stay in caucus with them or whether she will be shown the door. And many of those MPs have been speaking out publicly saying they are not happy with the fact that she recorded a phone conversation with the country's top public servant and then made it public. Uh, One of the people who spoke up was the infrastructure minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who criticized her ethics, saying he never recorded any conversations that he had when he was working as a lawyer. You know, I'm 48 years old. I'm a lawyer. I've conducted ethics investigations for a good part of my life, and I've never recorded anyone, nor did I did notes to file. So when you do that, I think Canadians can ask legitimate questions about what are the motives for that. He's not the only one. Other MPs like Wayne Easter, uh, Melanie Jolie, who's a tourism minister. We heard Mark Garneau yesterday. Many of them have been speaking up saying they're not happy with having a fellow caucus member who did this and who, quite honestly, is affecting their chances of being reelected. Some of them could potentially lose their jobs because of what has been happening with this. So if you were one of those caucus members, what would you do? Right. If this was your situation that you found yourself in, this was the government that you were working for, that you had run for, and now all of it is potentially on shaky ground, because that's definitely impacting their election chances this fall. Would you want them to stay in caucus or would you want Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott kicked out? That's our question today for the hot question of the day. If you were a Liberal caucus member, would you prefer to see them stay in the party or would you prefer to see them kicked out of the caucus? Let us know what you think about that. You can use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And you can go online onto Twitter if you've got it and cast your vote there. It is simi sarah 980 or at cknw is where you will find that question. Uh, they've. I'm surprised at how vocal many of these MPs have been on this front. Uh, but they certainly have been, and we're going to be hearing more about it. So cast your vote, let us know what you think, and I'll let you know. All right, Surrey residents, more debate about the move in that community to transition from the Surrey RCMP to a Surrey police force. Not a lot is known about the move right now, and that is prompting questions, especially from some of the councillors, which has led to, in some cases, a bit of a heated discussion, you could say, with Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum on this topic. And that's what happened at a meeting last night. We're going to talk more about that now with the help of Janet Brown, Global News Senior Reporter. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi. And the best way I think I can describe last night's city council meeting was that it was really a showdown of sorts uh, between city councillor Stephen Pettigrew and Mayor Doug McCallum. Now, it was councillor Pettigrew 
bringing a notice of motion forward last night calling for public consultation on moving from a civic to a civic police force from the RCMP. Uh, the mayor was having none of it. He said city to council meeting was not the place for the notice of motion. Uh, Doug McCallum saying the forum to bring such an issue up, anything to do with policing, in fact, he said, uh, has to do with the public safety committee. And that is where he said Pettigrew should bring his notice of motion. Let me play for you some of the exchange between Mr. Pettigrew and the mayor at last night's city council meeting. This notice of motion is to direct staff to develop and implement a process for citywide public consultation regarding the police transition. Council to receive the final report, which includes the results of a public consultation input prior to the report submission to the Ministers Farnsworth, Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General. Okay, Councillor Pettigrew, I'm going to rule that out of order. Um, this is the wrong venue for that uh, notice of motion. All matters that come before the um, in regards to police, certainly over my 12 years on council and in the three months here, go before the Public Safety Committee first um, before they come to this council, and that is under the, um, the uh, procedure um, um, part of this council and for your information, all previous ones. So I'm going to rule it out of order at this venue. You're free to bring it up at our next public safety committee meeting, uh, which is the proper venue to do that. So, may I please, um, with your on, um, no, there's no. I'm ruling it out of order, and there's no discussion on it. Okay, well, I'm going to challenge the chair. You can do that if you like. Are you going to? Yes. Okay, I'm going to call the question on challenging what I said um, to council. Um, first, I'm going to ask council um, to raise their hands the ones that support my decision. So raise your hands, the councillors that support my motion. So there's five, so we are, uh, the motion is um, your challenge thing, and you can bring it up at the public safety meeting. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Okay, any other business? That's so interesting, Janet, too, because the public safety meeting, those meetings are not public, are they? They are not. And as you heard Mr. Pettigrew say, he wants public consultation to be held before the policing report goes to the province from the city. Now, that report is going to the province, according to the mayor, the third week of April. When does the Public Safety Committee next meet? It meets on May the 6th. So the chances of public consultation, I would say right now, Simi, are slim to none. And also, those supporting Mr. Pettigrew on council, Brenda Locke, Jack Hundal, Linda Annis, the four of them, versus the other five on council, who uh, right now are saying there is no public consultation going to be held. They said the public consultation was during the election campaign when the voters of Surrey elected Mayor Doug McCallum and the others on council because they said it was very clear from the beginning that 
they wanted to go from the RCMP to a municipal police force. So right now, it does not appear that there will be public consultation. However, Simi, let me also point out okay. that we have heard from the Premier, we have heard also from the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, both of those gentlemen already saying that on such big issues, there should indeed be public consultation. So if I'm a guessing person, I would say that once that report does land on the desk, of Mr. Farnworth, and maybe the Premier weighs in on it as well, that it, they may come back to the City of Surrey and say, hey, thank you very much for this report, we appreciate it, we understand it, but you did not do public consultation, and you ah. need to do that before we agree to move ahead or not move ahead. That's my guess anyway. Interesting. Why do you think, I mean, you've talked to the Mayor extensively, why is he so opposed to making this process more public? Well, as I said, Simi, the mayor believes, and he's told me many, many times in the past that, as I said, uh, during the election campaign, he feels that was the public consultation, the public really? speaking and saying, we are electing you, Doug McCallum, because you represent and you've said that you will move from the RCMP to a municipal force. So he feels the public consultation was already done during the election campaign. But you talk to many councillors, you talk to many people in the city of Surrey, they want to know what is the bottom line going yes. to be? What is the cost to the taxpayer going to be? And maybe if there's some public consultation, some information put on the table to everybody, then they can make a more informed decision. And that's exactly what Mr. Pettigrew was saying last night. Such a big decision, such a big change for the city. He wants to know what it's going to mean for voters in the city of Surrey. Right. Because sometimes public consultation doesn't mean giving people a say. It just means letting them know what is happening. And it just seems like Surrey doesn't even want to let the public know what is happening in this process. Well, once the report uh, goes to the Solicitor General, um, it will be released to, to councillors. They will get a look at it before it actually goes to the province. How soon in advance? I don't know right now. Right. They don't know right now. Uh, maybe that information will be released before it lands on Mr. Farnworth's desk. Um, but once it, it, it does land in Victoria, hopefully it will be made public and people will find out because, as I say, at the end of the day, people want to know what is this going to cost them? Yes. What is it going to mean on their tax bill every year? We've heard that a municipal force could be maybe 10% more, um, but maybe not. It yeah. might be 25%, 30%, maybe 50% more. People want to know and they have to know uh, before they feel like they can move ahead with this initiative. And it's obviously a huge change for the city, Sir, uh, Simi. Oh, absolutely. Huge. Do you think, Janet, that this has strained the relationship at all between the mayor and some of his councillors? Because every time they speak up, and these are the councillors that like wrote it in on his party. Uh, that's an understatement, Simi, that's for sure. Uh, there seems to be a clear divide happening on City Council. Every time there, there's a vote, for, for the most part, it's always a split vote of five to four. And as, as I say, it's always Mr. Pettigrew, uh, Brenda Locke, Jack Hundile, Linda Annis, for the most part, agreeing on an issue. It's those four versus the other five on, on City Council with the other five always winning out in the vote. So, yes, there there appears to be very much a clear divide forming on city council, for sure. Absolutely, Simi. Makes for some interesting times. All right, Janet, thank you. Thank you, Simi. 
That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. Uh, You know, we may have been mistaken in thinking negotiating a new free trade agreement with the United States and Mexico was the hard part, because increasingly it looks like passing it, ratifying it, that that may be even tougher. In the United States today, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said a new NAFTA wouldn't get a vote there until Mexico changes its labor laws. And that is just one of the reasons why it looks like the deal is increasingly hitting some roadblocks. So what's going on here? And is the deal in trouble? Like, should we be worried? Let's talk to Dr. Ian Lee about this. Dr. Lee is an associate professor from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. Does it look to you like NAFTA's hitting some roadblocks here? Oh, I would go beyond the roadblocks. Uh, um, I have... I've been predicting since they negotiated the agreement that, um, uh, and actually before uh, the Democrats regained control of the House of Representatives, that if the Democrats, Democratic Party was to regain control, I was very skeptical that um, the new or revised uh, NAFTA or NAFTA 2.0, I was skeptical it would be passed into law. Uh, and I wasn't based on wild speculation. It was based on the comments on the record by leading um, uh, critical uh, individuals in the uh, House of Representatives and, for that matter, the U.S. Senate in the Democratic Party. Uh, and, Simi, one other quick point to bring out, again, it's all uh, material, empirical data, factual information for the record. The Democrats, the Democratic Party, has never supported a free trade agreement in the Congress. The original NAFTA, people may say, well, wait a minute, what about NAFTA? That was Bill Clinton. He was a Democrat. And indeed, Bill Clinton was a uh, Democrat who was committed to free trade. But when that bill went into the Congress for a vote, it was only able to become law because uh, the Republicans supported uh, Bill Clinton. The majority of the Democratic Congress men and women voted against NAFTA back in 1993. So they have a long record of being opposed to trade agreements. And so I don't think that this is... Uh, an anomaly or an exception. I think that they are being true to what they believe, and I don't think they're going to pass it. And so I can't see it going through. Uh, I mean, this is an election year in Canada, but more importantly, they're already campaigning in the states for the 2020, the fall elections, for both the House of Representatives, the Senate, and of course the presidency. So I just can't see this getting passed before we're into 2021 with possibly a new president, Possibly not, but I don't see it getting passed in the next two years. Oh, okay. That doesn't sound, that doesn't bode well for us at all. Then what is the no. holdup? What don't they like about it? Well, the, the uh, Democratic Party is, is a more, much more liberal party, if you will, uh, than, uh, than the Republican. The Republicans, the conservative party in the States, is the pro business party, and typically the pro free trade party, notwithstanding Donald Trump's strange comments on trade. I mean, Donald Trump's the anomaly, I think it's fair to say. But to answer your question very directly, um, the, the Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party has always been much more skeptical of the benefits of free trade, notwithstanding that we have known for 300 years, and I certainly have taught this in my classes, we've known for 300 years from both economic theory, including Nobel Prizes that have been awarded, as well as practice. The wealthiest countries in the world trade the most as a percentage of their GDP. The poorest countries in the world trade the least as a percentage of their GDP. Notwithstanding that, they've, they've long had uh, um, problems with uh, uh, trade agreements, uh, because it restricts 
the ability of governments to protect their own industries, uh, because that's what trade agreements do. They remove the ability of a government to protect its, uh, its industries, its companies, because the trade agreement says, you know, there must be a level playing field for the foreign firm against the domestic firm. And, and, and the Democratic Party has long believed that they should have the right to be able to intervene in the economy in order to protect, um, in their words, protect domestic uh, competitors. By the way, I, I'm, I don't buy the argument it's protection. I mean, I have right. long argued that when a country intervenes and puts tariffs on 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 uh, products coming in, that's to that harms the domestic uh, individuals. So when we put tariffs on in Canada, Donald Trump and the Americans don't uh, pay that. We pay it in Canada. Yeah. So we're not protecting. What we're doing is we are exploiting uh, Canadian consumers when we do that, and because it allows those tariffs allow the domestic companies to charge much higher prices. And the best example of all, very quickly, is the uh, famous uh, cell phone. We pay some of the highest cell phone fees in the world because we don't allow foreign companies to come in here, and that all thereby permits the domestic companies to to socket to us and charge much higher prices. Uh, Dr. Lee, let's talk, should Canada be worried here, and is there anything Canada can do to move this thing along? We should be worried. We should be very worried because... Um, a trade agreement is something we haven't talked about yet, but and I certainly talk about this in my class on a regular basis. Trade agreement, agreements actually benefit the small countries much more than the big countries. Uh, and I mean by big, I mean a country the size of the U.S., which is the largest economy in the world. Um, it, small countries need access to larger markets, whether it's Sweden or Denmark, because they're not small enough, they're not large enough, excuse me, to be completely self-reliant. Right. They just don't have the scale. We don't have the scale to make, you know, I talked to some people say, what's wrong with, you know, buying from inside Canada? Well, the answer is we don't have a, a big enough economy to make everything inside Canada. And that's why we trade. We trade because there's lots of things we can't make in Canada. It's not just the obvious stuff like blueberries in the winter, yeah. but there's lots of things that we don't make uh, in Canada. And so it contributes to a higher standard of living. And uh, so we should be very worried, but I don't think there's really anything we can do now because the, the 2020 election is in play in the states, and the Democrats, and it's not just Nancy Pelosi, to be very fair, remember, I'd say about, uh, uh, there's 20 candidates roughly, I believe, in the running now, and I would say about half of them are on the record as saying, uh, declaring their opposition uh, to trade agreements. So, you know, there's a very strong sentiment in the Democratic Party that is opposed to trade agreements. And so I don't see that changing. Right, um, but- and I think that, like a lot of things with big con- controversial issues, the only thing that, that addresses or solves the problem is to have an election, and then one of the two parties will win. And then they can go forward with that uh, mandate from the uh, electorate, from the voters, uh, to proceed. Why, but I don't think that will well, happen until 2021. Why isn't this a bigger priority then for the president? I mean, this is his deal. This is his baby. He made a big deal out of the negotiations, and now it just seems like he hasn't said much about getting it actually ratified. You're right. And and I think he made a mistake. I think Canada made a mistake, too, by the way, to share the blame around a little bit. Um, at the very beginning, um, and I mean the beginning of the negotiations for NAFTA, we dawdled along, the Americans dawdled along for over a year and a half. And it should have been very straightforward. We already had the NAFTA agreement on the books, so what we wanted to do was fine-tune it and, and revise it. But we went in and said, no way, no way will we give up anything whatsoever. Well, of course, that begs the question, if we're not willing to negotiate, why are we there 
to negotiate, to have negotiations. And negotiations are always about give and take. I give this up because I want something else from you. And Trump dawdled along and kept asking for more and more and more beyond his initial position. So it dragged the whole thing out. And what that meant was by the time they finally ratified the deal and brought it to the Congress, the Congress had changed. That is to say, the Republicans had lost the majority, and they would have supported NAFTA. So uh, Trump, I think, um, messed it up by dawdling and, and, and introducing demands on top of demands on top of demands. And the Canadian side uh, messed it up because we said at the beginning we weren't going to negotiate and give away anything. And we ended up, of course, we had to because that's the essence of negotiations, right? right. And same with labor negotiations. You know, you give up something to get something. And so as a result, we, we messed around and, and dawdled and, and it took a year and a half for something that should have been a done deal in, I think, six months flat. And as a result, we're now in this mess where I do not believe that this is going to get through this Congress because Nancy Pelosi, who is the leader of the Democratic Party in the U.S. House, has said point blank she's not going to allow it to come up for a vote. So she's going to, she's not going to, it's not she, she's saying it's going to get defeated on a vote. She controls what comes up for a vote in the House. And she has said, I'm not going to allow this to come forward for a Democratic vote. Now, that's her prerogative as the Speaker of the House. But that means there shall not be a vote. Yeah. If there's no vote, there's no ratification. So there's nothing or else everyone's stymied. Oh, no, it sure sounds like it. Dr. Lee, thanks so much for your time on this. My pleasure. Thanks very much. That is Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. You know, we're always told to be prepared for the big one, a big earthquake that could potentially cause a lot of damage here on the South Coast. And when that happens, though, we believe that first responders will spring into action, right? Well, maybe not as easy as we think on that one, because with our housing affordability crisis and crunch that we have had, it means that many first responders don't live in the communities that they actually work in. So if there's an earthquake, how are they supposed to get in to work? If we can't get around, how are they going to be getting around? There's been a report that has been done on this, and the author of that report is with us now. It is Steve Travis, the head of human resources for the city of Port Coquitlam. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Simi, for the opportunity. Tell me, why did you look into this? Uh, at the time, I was enrolled in a Master's of Arts uh, degree with Railroads University, and at the same time, uh, the city administrators in Metro Vancouver were looking for uh, a deeper dive into good neighbour agreements and uh, the impacts that those good neighbour agreements may have in the event of a natural disaster such as an earthquake. Okay, what is a good neighbour agreement? What does that mean? So what they were interested in, uh, currently there are um, shared servicing agreements between uh, neighboring municipalities, such as uh, for fire departments, and uh, the tendency is they are able to share resources across uh, those jurisdictions, different municipalities, but it hadn't really been uh, explored in detail uh, when it came to a natural disaster such as an earthquake. Okay, so what did you find out then? So not surprisingly, and tied into perhaps the housing context, uh, obviously there's more affordable housing in the east, and my research determined that indeed there are more firefighters that live in the eastern communities than those in the western communities. The further west we go, the uh, less number of firefighters that were uh, residing in the communities in which they worked. Okay, so that doesn't bode well, though, for those communities, does it, if there's an emergency? There will be shortages across the region if there was a disaster such as an earthquake. Uh, there are more first responders in the eastern communities, and the issue really is 
Uh, knowing that now, how do we ensure that they move from the eastern communities into the western ones? Is this something that you think we need to take a look at? Like, how bad is this problem? As far as uh, numbers, yeah. again, there's a lot more. Uh, actually, oversupplies in the eastern communities, uh, the northeast sector, uh, there's less in the western communities. So it's definitely an important topic, I think, for our regional planners, uh, emergency as uh, planners as well as the province, to look into in more detail about how we're going to move people around the region. Uh, there are groups that are doing that. Uh, IPREM is the Integrated uh, Partnership for Regional Emergency Management. Uh, it's a partnership between Metro Vancouver municipalities supported by the province, and they're one of the lead organizations that are using and looking at my research to address some of those accessibility concerns. Right, and you looked at the communities as a percentage, right? Like how many the first responders in each community, the percentage of which actually lived in that community? I did look at broad broad numbers as far as how many lived in each community, and there is um, more first responders that live outside of their home communities than those that live in those communities. And are some, like, for instance, like in Richmond, was the number something like 22%? That's correct. So only 22% of the first responders who work in Richmond actually live in Richmond. That, that's correct. Boy, that's a startling number, Steve, isn't it? Uh, well, Richmond's a little bit unique in that um, it's surrounded by water, whereas a number of the other communities, North Shore, for example, um, I have came up with a term in my report called a land island. And when you start looking at the adjoining municipalities collectively, the numbers look much better. Uh, again, the further east you go, the higher number of concentration of municipalities, but the further west you go, there are less firefighters that actually live in those communities. And that's really the essence of the importance of looking at accessibility, uh, transportation routes, not only just roads, but also things like marine highways and that kind of thing. Right. Because I guess like you look at a place like Richmond and you said it's it's surrounded by water. How are first responders supposed to get there if there's an emergency? Again, my research really looked at accessibility where they lived. Um, Richmond would be the ones to talk with about their plans um, as far as how they're going to get there people moving. Part of my research did look at uh, work that Port Metro Vancouver has done, and they've identified a number of nodes that would be potential um, launch points to move goods, uh, resources, and people if there was potentially uh, roads that were uh, impassable or bridges that were being inspected, that kind of thing. Yeah, Steve, what I found so fascinating about your uh, study that you looked at is that we're always told, right, that we have to prepare for an earthquake and we do all the things that we're, you know, have your earthquake kit ready and you should, you know, do the great shakeout, all of that. And yet we're not even fully ready when it comes to our emergency services. Well, I would suggest that uh, in an earthquake, all resources are going to be strained, and the importance of personal preparedness, uh, neighborhoods getting together and addressing the first uh, hours and days after emergency is still going to be critically important to uh, ensuring that individuals and neighborhoods are ready. Fire first responders will be doing everything they can to get back to work, but my study identified that due to uh, changes in where people live, there will be considerations about how you're going to get them back. Uh, One example would be where would you start as far as uh, inspecting of bridges? So given that higher concentration of first responders and firefighters that live in the eastern communities, it would make good sense for the province to look at policies where the east-west corridors and bridges would be addressed first to try to get those people moving towards Richmond, Vancouver, and other large centres further uh, west in the region. 
Well, you've certainly started a conversation then, Steve. So what is the next step? Like, Is this being worked on now, do you think? It is. So I mentioned IPREM earlier, yeah. the uh, regional group that's uh, been put together by the province, uh, works closely with our city uh, administrators across the region. They're working with the Greater Vancouver Fire Chiefs Association, uh, Tim Armstrong, is the chair of that, and they're looking at the research to come up with regional policies and solutions to address uh, this potential gap in moving people from A to B in the event of a disaster. Um, The reality is our bridges aren't going to fall down. My research identified they're up to earthquake standards, but there will be a lag as far as inspection, and there's not uh, necessarily uh, bridge inspectors that live close to the bridges. They're going to have to get there as well. So that's just one example of the consideration that I think is uh, informed by this research We need to look at other uh, avenues, such as uh, the waterways as a way to move people around. That's all really good stuff that I bet a lot of us hadn't thought about if there's an earthquake. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Amy. That is Steve Travis, the head of human resources for the city of Port Coquitlam and the author of a study that looked at this issue, which, yeah, we don't think about that kind of stuff, right? You think of emergency services, but inspecting bridges to make sure how quickly you can get them back into service after there is an earthquake. Um, Which bridges will be a priority? Which ones do you do first? Where do the bridge inspectors live? These are all good questions that Steve Travis has asked. And most of us still don't have an earthquake quit, right? Even in our garage or where we need them in case an earthquake hits here on the South Coast. It's not the list that Canada wants to be on, and yet here we are. There is a report that came out from the U.S. Department of State last month, and it puts Canada on the short list of countries that are vulnerable to significant drug money laundering transactions. And of course, we all know how vulnerable Canada, and in particular BC, has become to that. This, of course, the topic of Sam Cooper's latest piece. You'll find it at globalnews.ca. He is the national investigative journalist for Global News, and he joins us now. Hi, Sam. Hi, Simi. This sounds like not the kind of list that any country would want to be on. So how did Canada end up here? Well, the, the U.S. State Department does a review yearly of the countries that have major vulnerabilities to uh, drug trafficking through the financial system. And there are a number on there that we know of, such as Colombia, Mexico, we would expect, Afghanistan. But Canada, for uh, several years now, has been put on this major money laundering country list. And the reasons are uh, probably getting familiar to, to your listeners they, they have to do with vulnerabilities with casinos, real estate, and professional money launderers. And the people that are really taking advantage of Canada in this situation is transnational organized crime drug traffickers that are especially using these, uh, what we now know are sophisticated underground banks and professional money launderers, especially in cities like Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. So we get put on this list. Was there any reaction from the Canadian government to having that happen? Because that doesn't sound like a good thing. Well, the Canadian government would have liaised with the U.S. government and international anti-money laundering intergovernmental groups before this and shared some information. And we could probably assume that the recent moves we saw in the federal budget proposal for a new Canadian anti-money laundering task force would have been somewhat in response to this kind of designation. There's no disagreement in uh, in among Canadians, uh, Canada's leaders, such as uh, David Eby in BC or Bill Blair, the uh, organized crime reduction minister in Ottawa, that Canada does have a big problem with anti uh, with money laundering now. So they would have known about this and they are taking some slow 
perhaps sure steps towards fixing the problems, but the report from the U.S. does underline things that we've been talking about in our reports at Global News, and that is very weak prosecutions of money laundering in Canada, a bad record for that, and also uh, tough privacy laws that are good for honest citizens but, but are being exploited by uh, sophisticated criminals. Right. So the report says that, what, there were 169 charges of money laundering that led to convictions in Canada between 2010 and 2014, and yet we know that money laundering was proliferating during that time. Absolutely. The report says given the the significant risk in Canada, that that prosecution rate is very low. And we've seen some uh, some very prominent examples recently in British Columbia, of course, of the e-pirate massive anti-money laundering investigation involving casinos that fell apart. So that's probably case one that comes to the top of mind. But this has been happening across the country, this weak rate of prosecutions. British Columbia is, we believe, the worst for that, but uh, it's not good across the rest of the country either. Uh, Did it also single out Canada and the role in the opioid overdose crisis? Yes, the report does note Canada is not unique in suffering from opioid overdoses. They have a, um, a very bad problem in the United States as well. But Canada, it does note that Canada's uh, problems there continues to get worse. About 8,000 deaths in the past three years due to mostly uh, illicit fentanyl overdoses. And as we know, uh, China is a big exporter of fentanyl into North America. So the report notes that uh, the fentanyl still is flowing in from China. However, Canadian officials do claim that that was reduced slightly in 2018. So a bit of a silver lining there, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully, right. Uh, So we know as well that there's supposed to be another report coming out here in BC shortly when it comes to money laundering. Does it it indicate to you, Sam, that perhaps some progress is being made in terms of the different levels of government paying attention? Certainly we're seeing uh, governments in Ottawa and British Columbia are now coordinating to work together on this. We can question the amount of resources that they're, they're putting in, certainly, but there, that no one can deny that there is a level of, uh, I'd say, strategic thinking. First of all, recognition, we have a bad problem and we need to do something better about it. Um, we've, we've seen today, it was announced in, uh, uh, in Victoria that the finance ministry is proposing a new registry that would reveal all the owners of uh, all the property in BC. So people will not be able to anonymously launder money quite as easily anymore. Certainly we've, we've seen money laundering transactions go down in casinos. That's provable. And we believe they're probably dropping in real estate as well, because the message is being put out that BC has been a tremendously weak, weak link, but that is changing. Right. So for the downside of that, though, is that we're noticing a bit of a slowdown, too. Do you think people are prepared for that? That's, I mean, that is a question that I'm sure uh, will be uh, exchanged at dinner parties, dinner tables, barbecues. Everyone, you know, it it really depends where you are in the market. Are you a young person coming up trying to, you know, your first or second job trying to get into the market? Or are you a person that, you know, has a, a single family home and a couple of condos? If depending where you sit, you're going to look at this very differently because, uh, yeah, we're seeing prices drop quite, I'd say, pretty sharply in the past couple months. And, you know, my if I had to boil down my thoughts on that um, long term, if your if your market depends on money launders and corrupt officials, that's not a good business model. Oh, that was well put, Sam. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little 
or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simi. That is Sam Cooper, Global News Investigative Reporter. You can catch his latest piece on money laundering in the list that Canada finds itself on, and it's not a good list, at globalnews.ca. Text messages and meetings and phone calls that are being taped and caucus meetings, and oh boy, it's all going on in Ottawa today. As we've heard, there, there were text messages between Jody Wilson-Raybould and Gerald Butts have been released, uh, detailing their conversations going back and forth uh, just prior to Jody Wilson-Raybould being shuffled out of the Attorney General position. Uh, There's a lot going on in Ottawa, including a potential caucus meeting for the Liberal MPs today where they're deciding the fate of keeping Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott in in their caucus as well. Let's get an update then on everything that's going on in Ottawa, shall we? Amanda Connolly joins us now, our Global News political reporter in Ottawa. Amanda, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What is the latest on this Liberal caucus meeting that's going on? So what we're hearing so far is that there is going to be a caucus meeting tomorrow morning, that's it, in Ottawa time, uh, and that there will be a debate and discussion at that time as to whether to keep Jody Wilson-Raybould, as well as Jane Philpott as well, who is the former Treasury Board President, in the Liberal caucus. Now, we're hearing this in light of the fact that, of course, there have been numerous revelations coming out on the SNC-Lavalin scandal in recent days, including the text messages between Jody Wilson-Raybould and Gerald Butts, that came out today. Now, Gerald Butts, of course, is the former principal secretary and right-hand man to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And we had seen as well today and and yesterday as well a real kind of changing of the tune from a lot of Liberal MPs in terms of their willingness to criticize Jody Wilson-Raybould over a taped conversation with Privy Council Clerk Michael Warnick that was released on Friday. Now, what we're hearing so far is that, again, there's a lot of concern within the Liberal caucus as to whether Jody Wilson-Raybould can be trusted in light of taping that conversation and more broadly the steps that she has taken to bring this issue into the spotlight. And really we're, we're waiting to see right now in terms of, of, of where that will go. We know that the Ontario Liberal Caucus met today. That, that was a special meeting that had been called to, we, we assume, kind of get their, their, their um, ducks in a row, you could say, and sort out kind of how members in that are feeling. It's the largest group of Liberal Caucus members within the bigger caucus. So to have them sort out their their view and their concerns before going into the bigger meeting would certainly be expected. She really did kind of draw a line in the sand, though, with her letter to caucus, didn't she? She was kind of saying, I didn't do anything wrong here, so why, and I want to stay in caucus. So she's kind of like daring them to do something. It certainly, you know, if if we were expecting a tone of contrition or apology, this letter certainly was not that. And I'll I'll read you a little bit here. It was saying, uh, from Jody Wilson-Raybould, saying, I was trying to help protect the prime minister and the government from a horrible mess. I am not the one who tried to interfere in sensitive proceedings. I am not the one who made it public, and I am not the one who publicly denied what happened. So the whole tone of this letter here that was sent to the Liberal caucus writ large really is is, is Jody Wilson-Raybould defending herself, saying she doesn't think that she did anything wrong here, that she was acting out of this uh, belief in the, the vision for a new kind of government, a new kind of politics that the Liberal Party ran on in 2015, and that the choice right now really is up to her caucus members as to whether they want to uphold that vision for a better kind of politics that was such a key part of the 2015 campaign or whether they're actually going to move to, right. to eject her. And what about Jane Philpott in all of this, Amanda? I understand that she had like a, a, I guess, kind of a statement of support today for the prime minister. 
Yeah, so we heard her say today that she uh, she she does support the the prime minister. She supports the party, the the larger vision of the party. She does still have uh, one area of, of confidence that she she does not have confidence in the government in that being the handling of the SNC Lavalin affair. But again, um, trying to it seems make it clear that even though that's the case, she does still support the party. She does still believe in what the party is trying to do. And we heard this in, in her original expressions of concern, saying that the Liberal Party has to be the best version of itself. It's not enough just to be in government and try and hold on to that power. They have to, they have to again, be, be the best that they can be, in a sense. And so we certainly seem to hear that today, perhaps a temp- uh, walking back a little bit of some of the publicizing of her concerns, but certainly still indicating that they do exist. And where is the Prime Minister in all of this? We're hearing all the caucus members and different ministers speaking. Where has the Prime Minister been? He has been MIA so far today and yesterday as well. We know he's been having a number of meetings with officials from Israel who were in Canada for a number of of, of pre-planned meetings and visits. He had been expected to be in question period today, but did not did not do that. There was a a, a change of plan in terms of uh, meetings that were being scheduled or perhaps plans that were changed. So. Uh, he he has not been in Ottawa to take questions on this. He's been doing a number of meetings uh, in Toronto and, and kind of all, all around with these visiting dignitaries. But again, this is a key a key matter in question period that just wrapped up a little while ago. Here we heard the Conservatives hammering the government again and again on this and the, these these new uh, texts and, and documents that have come out that they're saying really again consolidate and, and corroborate. A lot of the key yeah. concerns that were raised by Jody Wilson-Raybould. And what happened to Pierre Polyev's filibuster? Is that still going to be going ahead? It's still going on. <laughs> we're in day two of that right now. But of course, because he's he's not doing what you would consider really a, um, a traditional filibuster in terms of what we've seen so far in Canada from these Conservatives, he's speaking basically consistently throughout a four-day period set aside for debate on a budget bill. But that doesn't go all at once. Other par- parliamentary bills, business is still continuing. And so whenever they return to that, and we saw it earlier this morning, we'll, we'll see it likely this afternoon as well and tomorrow morning too, you will continue to see him speaking on that every time the, the matter is coming up in the House of Commons until he agrees to cede the floor. Okay, so well, you got a lot going on, Amanda. So we appreciate you taking the time out to update us. There, there's sure a lot going on. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is Amanda Connolly, the Global News political reporter in Ottawa. Well, today is World Autism Awareness Day. And because of that, we wanted to take a look at how people with autism um, fare when it comes to getting a job and keeping a job and what can be done differently to help people settle into those jobs. Uh, because autism, as we know, presents certain challenges. But you know what? There is a group here in Vancouver that is looking to help out with that. Uh, the group is called Resource Works. We wanted to learn more about that. Uh, joining us now is Lonnie Belfer, who's the program manager for Orbital Learning. It's a not-for-profit school that helps people with autism stay in employment and also the lead of the Spectrum Works job fair. Lonnie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So it sounds like this is an issue that repeatedly comes up. Like there's a lot of people with autism who would love to be able to have a job, right? Absolutely. Well, I, would, I think everybody would love to have a job. I think uh, working is a big part of, of every, anybody's identity and, um, is, and is meaningful to, to <laughs> pretty much everybody. Yeah, no kidding. How, what are some of the challenges though, Lonnie? Um, well, uh, for the, uh, the biggest challenge that people with autism face when it comes to employment uh, is the stigma around uh, the stigma and the myths around autism. Okay, um, like what? Uh, lots of people, when they think of, of 
uh, autism or developmental disabilities in general. Uh, they think of somebody working as a greeter or uh, cleaning tables uh, or maybe not even co- uh, capable of doing any sort of employment, <coughs> where in fact that's, that's very much untrue. Um, uh, uh, autism is a spectrum disorder. It's, uh, it's autism spectrum disorder for a reason, and it's a variety of, uh, of uh, ways that, that it presents itself in a variety of people. And pretty much uh, uh, you, can have, you can have autism uh, and be very functional in, in, a, in a variety of different roles, um, but people will, will under, uh, unfortunately fall under that, that kind of ableism, uh, which is sort of a, a new ism that's occurred uh, that uh, right. uh, they make assumptions. Right. Are there things that employers can do to help out, like to be more welcoming, to be more understanding? Oh, for sure. And there, I mean, there are certainly uh, things uh, that, that present themselves uh, to many folks with, uh, with, with autism, around, particularly around uh, uh, when you're talking about employment in particular, uh, our standard interview practices are not really uh, uh, a good way to get to know somebody with, with autism. In, in the way we do interviewing, generally speaking, uh, interviews are designed to see if you fit into a culture at, at, a, at a workplace. By the time somebody gets called into an interview, the, the They've already decided that the person has meet has met those kind of skills, right? Uh, and so now the interview is more of a uh, does this do we like this person or not? And that's where someone with with ASD kind of uh, loses loses the, the the opportunity because that's tough for them. Uh, they, they they're not as strong in the in the uh, the the. It's like the social uh, aspect of it. Exactly, exactly. The, the, the social pieces are, are what tends to be missing, um, and, and, they, and then they don't get the chance. Right. Do you think sometimes, Olani, like, are employers willing, but they just don't understand, perhaps, what they need to do? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, a lot, more and more employers are, are stepping up, and big, and big names are stepping up to, to create... Uh, autism programs that have been uh, and, and inclusive hiring practices, which has been like very pivotal in in helping people with ASD uh, find meaningful employment. I mean, we're talking about organizations like HSBC, Apple, uh, uh, Van City, Microsoft, SAP. Uh, these are all companies that have actively sought out to hire and to change the way they. They do, they do business to support people with ASD. Right. Do you think sometimes as well, Lonnie, that there are misconceptions like employers think, oh, it's going to be too hard or we won't be able to accommodate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that, that is a, a very big myth that, that it's going to be too costly or it's going to be too difficult to change things uh, or they're just not going to fit in and they're not going to be happy here. Yeah. Um, but that's not, that's a, it is a myth. It's very, in a lot of cases, uh, it's, a, it's very minor uh, uh, accommodations that need to be made uh, in order to to have somebody with ASD be successful in that workplace. Right. So, is it um, like what kind of accommodations would have to be made? Well, a very good example is actually uh, yesterday. I actually think I heard it on. So I think it was on your show, but it may have been uh, uh, Linda Steele. Uh, there was the uh, uh, the Langley uh, Safeway uh, 
right. did a, uh, did, did a uh, thing where they, they actually made it sensory friendly for people with autism. Uh, and they lowered the music, or they turned off the music, they lowered the, the sounds from the cash registers, they, they reduced the lighting. Uh, a, big, a big issue for people with ASD is, the, is those sensory uh, uh, sensitivities. Yeah. Um, and so that was a very minor accommodation that Safeway did that, that, was, that really made a world of difference to, to people with ASD as well as their families because they were able to go shopping. You know, Lonnie, what's, what's so interesting about that is that we could all benefit from that kind of stuff, right? Like, there's so much oh, noise pollution today. I would be to- totally happy if there was less music when I go to a store and if they turned down some of the noise in there. Absolutely. And quite frankly, most of the things that, is, that, that the people that are asking for are things that we can all benefit from. Uh, the difference being that, that, that uh, as a neurotypical, we are able to adapt. Whereas uh, a neurodiverse person, uh, a person with ASD, uh, is not able to adapt because that sensitivity is so uh, is so extreme. Right. Is it habit as well, Lonnie? Like, is maybe an employee that has autism is it just past a longer adjustment period? Maybe. No, uh, it's not. It's not a matter of a habit. It's, it's, it's actually this is part of the spectrum disorder. Uh, so they, there are things that they can do to to acclimatize. But uh, in order for there to be a successful um, uh, match with, a, with an employer and an employee, uh, you really have to have that, that, uh, that give and take. So um, an, an, uh, an employee with ASD will do what they can to be, to be more aware of what their triggers are uh, and to be more vocal about, uh, about what they need to, in order to be, uh, to be successful and to not uh, have their sensitivities triggered. Uh, but an employer has to be understanding of that as well, uh, uh, because it's not something that they're, they're it's not a, a bad attitude. Um, it, it truly is part of this, the disorder. Right. So it is mutual, though, what you're saying as well, because the yeah. employee also has to work on it. Oh, absolutely. And, it, and, it, and it's, a, it's a big part of it is that open communication to move, to remove that stigma and let, and let the employee uh, have a, a safe place where they can say, you know what, I can't work in this uh, this environment where it's, it's an open plan uh, workspace because I can't concentrate. Yeah. That is so interesting then. So it sounds very hopeful. It is. It is. And I, and I really like where we're going as a society uh, towards uh, being more inclusive uh, with, with autism in particular, but in a variety of ways. Oh, it's so interesting. Lonnie, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. That is Lonnie Belfer, Program Manager for Orbital Learning. They are a not-for-profit school that helps people with autism essentially stay employed, right? Stay in their employment. You know, trying to track an endangered species in the wild can be incredibly challenging. As you can imagine, if they're endangered, there's not very many of them. Try finding them, try counting them, try making sure if there's, you know, something you can do to help. But that job, that incredibly challenging job, might be made a little easier thanks to some scientists at the University of Victoria and a genetic tool that they have developed there. So let's find out more about it. Dr. Karen Helbing joins us now, a professor at the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology over at UVic. Dr. Helbing, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me about this new genetic tool. How does this work? Well, this, this new genetic tool is, is something called environmental DNA or eDNA. And it, uh, it works on the, the premise that all living organisms that uh, have cells that have DNA in them, and the, they slough off that DNA into their immediate environments. And they leave it behind when they, they move on. And 
just like with forensics, we can actually take an environmental sample, like, say, a scoop of water, and actually measure the DNA in that water to find out if a particular species has been there recently or not. That's what I was thinking. You said the word forensics. I was thinking it's like a crime scene, like tracking human DNA. Yeah, it's kind of like CSI for wildlife. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. People can understand that, right? We can wrap our heads around that. So mm-hmm. how, how does this work then? Like, and what can you look for? Does it matter how small the amount of DNA is? Well, the, the, the DNA has to, has to still be intact enough that, that we can actually detect the, the sequence of, of the small parts of DNA. Um, so what we were able to do is actually take those sequences of DNA and design tests that can differentiate between uh, DNA from an endangered species versus the DNA, say, from a human. Okay. And so has this been tested? Have you been trying it out? Yeah. As a matter of fact, we just recently published a a paper with uh, a colleague, uh, Jared Hobbs um, from Hamera, that um, looked at the coastal tailed frog. And this frog is is a really neat species, and it's it's a a species at risk in B.C., it's a really cool species because it's it's one of the very few frogs that actually have a tail-like kind of appendage in the males um, as adults. And they, they actually use it for internal fertilization. They live in, in mountainous areas by uh, streams, and they're really hard to actually spot um, with, with normal traditional surveys that, that, that field biologists do. As a matter of fact, we found that uh, we had about an 8% detection rate over four years of survey effort in an area in, in, uh, in BC. But when we went back, just, just, just detection rate by observing the animals, but when we went back with um, the eDNA detection methods and just took scoops of water from similar areas in that, in that, that place, we actually found uh, a much higher detection rate of 76%. Whoa. And the neat thing about that is it didn't take four years. You want to guess how long it took? How long? Five days. No way. Yeah. And <laughs> it, was a, it was a lot cheaper to do because, you know, it took a lot less time and stuff. But it was also a lot easier for the field biologists, too. No kidding. So using traditional survey methods, they found the rate of frogs at 7.9%, but using... The e like the genetic testing method, they found them at seventy six percent. Does that mean that there were just way more of those frogs out there than they realized? Well, we can't say that there were way more of the frogs. All we could really say is that we could detect them in in, in more of the area that was tested. So it gives us a really great great way to actually uh, define where where the frogs may be living. Yeah. But we can't really tell how many of them there are just yet. Okay, so where else could this be used? Like, how do you see it being used? Well, another really important application, in addition to looking at species at risk, are um, invasive species as well. And oh, it's a really good early early warning system for, for invasive species moving in. And we, it doesn't have to just be used for frogs. It can be used for fish or, or it can be used for, for a whole range of different, different kinds of wildlife, not just limited to frogs. This is really impressive. So have you been getting a lot of interest in this? 
Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. It's eDNA is is uh, really getting a lot of traction. It it was it was first this, this concept of using eDNA to detect wildlife was was originally um, ex, uh, was originally described about a decade ago in France and 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 it's it's starting to really take take off and and people are recognizing that eDNA detection uh, can really be a game changer for um, for environmental monitoring. Right. So you were using, you said like you scoop up the water, right? And you examine the water. Yeah. Are there other ways that you can do it too, or do you mainly need to scoop up the water? Yeah, there's other ways you can do it. So, so basically any kind of environmental sample has a potential <clears throat> as long as it has, <clears throat> excuse me, as long as it has DNA in it, uh, that's intact enough. Uh, it, it should work. So you could, you could get sediment samples, soil samples, even potentially uh, air samples as well. Wow, that's impressive. Is that what you're working on now? Yeah, we're, we're particularly focusing on, on soil samples and sediment samples in addition to the water. There's lots of work to be done in that. Okay, so then what happens now with this? Like, where can this be used more readily? Well, uh, it can be applied uh, applied in a whole bunch of different scenarios. Um, there's really no limit. Um, a lot of people are, are interested in, in using it for um, for regulatory purposes. Um, communities are, are very keen on using it as well, as well as natural resource companies um, to to help make management decisions and, and get more reliable and accurate data. Right. I was thinking about that too, like when you have to do an environmental study, right? That, that this is the good way to figure out what lives in that area. Yeah, definitely. It it really is a, a really good complement to the traditional survey methods that are currently being used. Well, that is fascinating. Listen, thank you so much for your time on this. Well, thank you very much, too. That is Dr. Karen Helbing, a professor at the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology at the University of Victoria, part of the team that came up with this uh, genetic tool. They call it eDNA or environmental DNA technology. All right, let's talk climate change and a very disturbing report that came out from Environment and Climate Change Canada. And it says that our country is warming up twice as fast as the rest of the world. And it's even happening faster in winter. Let's find out more about this and what's going on. Nathan Gillette is with us now, Senior Scientist at Environment and Climate Change Canada, one of the authors of this report. Nathan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. What is going on in Canada that we would be having this happen faster here? Um, well, that's right. So Canada is warming at about twice the global rate. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of them is that as ice and snow melt, um, that the ground tends to absorb more heat from the sun uh, and it warms up more quickly. So that, that uh, mechanism, mechanism happens more in the Arctic and in high-latitude countries like Canada. Um, also, the land is warming more than the ocean. And again, that contributes to Canada warming at a faster rate than the global average. Okay, so what does that mean for us then? So like, no matter what we do, is that still going to keep happening? Um, well, it, Canada has warmed and is continue, going to continue to warm at about twice the global average. But uh, the emissions that we, um, the emissions of greenhouse gases from now going into the future will be what determines uh, the level of global warming in the future. And uh, one of the conclusions from the report is that under, an, under a scenario where we continue to increase emissions, we could expect around six degrees of warming in Canada on average 
by the end of the century. Whereas on a scenario, if we're able to start cutting emissions globally uh, and um, decrease them to, uh, through the first part of the century, then we could expect only about two further, two further degrees of warming this century, which would be a much more moderate uh, amount of climate change. Now, how much, though, do we have to cut those emissions globally to get the better outcome? Um, right. So, yes, the scenario that we looked at is one that's consistent with meeting the two-degree global mean warming goal in the Paris Climate Agreement, and that has um, em- emissions of greenhouse gases starting to c- decline very soon and declining to um, zero in just after 2050, so in the second half of this century. Okay. So big declines. Yeah, that's that's a big change, though. Are we up for this? Um, so that's not really the subject of the report, uh, although you know there are technologies I think that, that can get us to uh, to big reductions in emissions. Um, the report is focused on um, looking at the climate change that would result depending on whether we follow a high emission scenario or a low emission scenario and um, some of the um, effects that will have on right. the climate in Canada to, to inform decisions about uh, climate mitigation. Well, can we talk about the better outcome scenario? That's the two degree one? Sure. Okay, so what kind of impact would that have? Like, what would we notice with that scenario? Um, I mean, I think in any case, we are going to see ongoing impacts. Um, so we've already observed, for example, an increase in heat waves in Canada, so more extreme warmth. Uh, we've ex- observed an overall um, increase in rainfall. We've observed a bigger fraction of um, of rain to snow, so more rain and less snow. Um, so there are a number of areas where we've already observed impacts. Um, we've, we've observed increases in sea level. Uh, we've observed changes in river flow patterns, so that as with uh, melting glaciers and melting snow, the peak in the stream flow in rivers is occurring earlier in the year. So we would expect all these trends to continue, whichever scenario we follow, um, but there'll be much more moderate changes in the uh, scenario where we reduce emissions than the one with increasing emissions. Right. So the one with the increasing emissions, that's six degree difference. That, that could be a huge difference. Absolutely, yes. And the six degrees is the average across Canada. Um, if we look at the average in the winter, which is when we expect to see the strongest warming, um, that the warming in the north, which is, again, the north of Canada is the place area where where we expect the strongest warming is uh, above 11 degrees in the model average prediction. So that is a very large warming um, that would be projected under that scenario. Okay, so Nathan, then when you put out a report like this, right, obviously it gets a lot of people's attention. What do you hope happens as a result? Well, I think that um, the the report is intended to, uh, and it's the first in a series of reports on climate change in Canada that are looking at so this one's looking at climate change itself, but there are other reports following up which are looking at the impacts of climate change. And there's really two main um, aims for, for publishing the reports. One is to inform adaptation to climate change. So how can we, we uh, how can we, for example, change our buildings so that they're able to withstand climate change in the future better? Um, but, you know, there's lots of things we can do to adapt to climate change. And then the other is to inform um, uh, policy on climate change mitigation, so reducing emissions to um, reduce future climate change. And of course, climate change is a global problem um, with the, the climate change is driven by global emissions, but every country um, and even every individual has a part to play or can contribute to reducing emissions and reducing climate change. That's part of the problem though too, isn't it, Nathan? Though we talk, It is a global problem, but trying to tackle it as a country, you always get that attitude from people who are saying like, well, why should we do this when other countries aren't going to pitch in? 
Um, it's true. I think that you know we do need um, international agreement um, to to make a, a to, to make progress on climate. Well, well, that that helps make progress on climate change. You know, we do have the Paris Climate Agreement, which um, commits countries to limiting global warming to two degrees and making reductions in emissions. Uh, and you know, a, a lot of countries have pledged reduced emissions to to uh, get us towards meeting those targets. Um, but at the same time, it is also the case that any reduction in emissions will contribute to reducing future climate change. So I agree it's a hard problem, but I think that um, there is some there is some uh, efforts underway that to, to, to help us meet those goals. Right. So essentially anything we can do will make some kind of a difference. Yes, absolutely. All yeah, right. It's really, the, it's really the total amount of emissions that determines the total amount of future climate change. And so anything that we can do to reduce those emissions will reduce future climate change. See, that's that's promising then. I think people can work with that. Nathan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. That is Nathan Gillette, a senior scientist at Environment and Climate Change Canada, and one of the authors of this report.